Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Namihi nui and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Later in the show, we'll hear about the chemical element oxygen. But first, today it's not uncommon to find parents who have separated. But for those who have done so as a result of a court order, life post separation isn't always as easy as you might think. Associate Professor Vivian Elizabeth from the Department of Sociology at the University of Auckland, has been studying relationships and their breakups, and she talks with Sonia Sly. One every four minutes. On average, that's how often police attend a domestic violence incident. A staggering number of people have been charged with strangulation since a new law was introduced in December. We have a big problem with domestic violence, but what we don't recognise in talking about domestic violence is the wider spectrum of what I call oppressive intimacy. And this is Associate Professor Vivian Elizabeth from the Sociology Department at the University of Auckland. And her research has delved into the lives of women post-separation, addressing how their sense of identity changes and their experience in family court and the changes to her role as a mother and caregiver. I specialise in family and gender. I look at the way in which those two intersect to shape people's um, everyday lives, really. In neither call for participants did we ask for mothers who had experienced um, domestic violence or what we often now call coercive control. But what she discovered is that those who responded came from backgrounds where they felt powerless and isolated. But before we move on, what is coercive control? The use of intimidation and bullying and humiliation to limit a woman's capacity to, to act in ways that we would normally expect. So she's unable to act autonomously. For many of us, if we've separated from a partner who's not abusive, you know, it can actually be a liberating experience. But for these women, even after separation, many of them still feel trapped. What stood out for me when I think about those women's stories is that they couldn't actually separate. Vivian came across one woman whose ex-partner just couldn't let go. He stalked her up and down the country for 10 years. Who's there? Hello? She would see him driving past or he would leave something in her letterbox. You know, he was just quietly telling her, I'm here, you just don't get away. You know, it wasn't a comforting presence, it was a threatening presence. And he had been grossly violent. She had nearly been killed by him. 
Not all of the women I've spoken to have been so grossly violated, but they still have a sense of threat. And especially when children are in the picture, some men use the law to maintain a form of control over their partner. Fathers who are invested in being controlling of their partners are able to use the law to actually stalk them and to actually threaten them in a place that hurts mothers almost the most. And that is over the time they spend with their children. And our requirement now for fathers to stay involved is that women can't actually separate because you're always having to engage with them in some way or another and you're supposed to engage with them because the ideal is you're supposed to be a cooperative parent. Even if you're not actually having active contact like with changeovers, for example, you're still aware of his presence. His decision-making still impacts on you. You're still not autonomous. So I've heard women talk about not even being able to move across Auckland because the fathers of their kids have taken them to court. They've been able to constrain the woman's mobility. The law enables this kind of control if fathers choose to activate it. I used the idea of custody stalking because I thought it would be really, really resonant that we would begin to understand how the law is not neutral in this no, regard. Definitely and it, not. And it can be used as a tool for malign purposes when people want to use it for malign purposes. It's co- quite commonplace for fathers when relationships are getting rocky or when it's clear that a woman's going to leave or she's just left to threaten women. And sometimes we see fathers enacting that threat through very, very violent means. And we've had examples in New Zealand where fathers kill the kids. It may well be about a kind of payback. You've hurt me, I'm going to get you. Often when we think about that kind of wounding, there's an element of shame involved. Shame's a deeply painful emotion that sometimes we actually actively bypass. And when we actively bypass it, we can be very, very angry, very retributive. And Vivian says that more attention needs to be paid to the abuse of partners who are trying to gain greater access to their children post-separation, particularly if they haven't played much of a role in their children's lives previously. It looks to us as if it's a good father pursuing active involvement. We don't see that as perhaps part of a pattern of revenge. We don't see any connection between custody stalking and more physical and violent stalking. What we know, again, from other literature is that men who have been controlling, who've been violent, are very active in the courts and in pursuing time. So we may have to ask why. Why? What's at stake for them? So we actually expect mothers um, who are living with violent and abusive fathers to actually leave. And if the fathers are actually posing a risk to their children, they should leave even faster. And on the other hand, when those same fathers end up in family court, we expect mothers to support the fathering of those fathers by giving up time. Given that some of these women, or a majority of the the women in your studies, had come from negative kind of experiences... Did they feel an aspect of guilt or that perhaps feeling like they'd made the wrong decision to leave given that perhaps their feeling of sadness and that feeling of loss was so strong? It didn't get any sense that they felt like the decision to leave was a mistake for them. 
but they did wonder whether it was a mistake for their children. And that's because her children might be at risk under the care of her ex-partner. But is that paranoia? One woman in my last study was really, really concerned about the sexual safety of her child. She couldn't get anybody in the court, the psychologist, the judges, the lawyer for the child to recognise the child's vulnerability. And subsequently, the child was sexually abused. And it's been profoundly damaging for that young person's life. It's been a a traumatic and life-changing experience. So why didn't anyone listen? We don't credit women's voices in court. We see them as simply an interested party. So this is the other thing. In everyday life, we expect mums to be interested and on the side of their children as the voice of their child. But as soon as they enter into the court, they're no longer able to speak on behalf of their child because they're simply another interested party. What do you think that says about society and society's attitude to what it means to be a nurturer, what the role of motherhood is? Well, I think we still don't value it very much, actually. But but also, do you think that there is a societal perception and they'll just see her as a crazy woman? Some of it is about, like, hysteria. She's just being hysteric. That's probably, you know, a more benign meaning that's given to it. Other times it's just seen as a deliberate tactic to actually exclude the father. Social conditioning and prescribed gender roles plays a big role in how society perceives women, which inadvertently contributes to and perpetuates that cycle of abuse. We actually often think of women being vengeful, and that tends to stick to mothers in the court, whereas when we think about the things that fathers might do, including that they've been violent, those accusations don't stick, and even if they do stick, they don't necessarily make a difference to his access to his children. And it poses a great deal of risk. But there are other subtle ways that abusive partners maintain power and control. And migrant women are some of the most vulnerable and face huge barriers after separation. I've talked to a couple of migrants, some mothers who have come to New Zealand without other family and may have a smaller circle of friends to call upon. And this particular mother, you know, she'd wanted to go back. She was bereft of everything that supported her and gave her life meaning. Not only was that the case, but her ex had actively gone out and destroyed her friendship network by spreading malicious rumours about her. She didn't have family here. So again, this is a really big issue that we face in a globalised world. What do we do with parents who have migrated, whose social support resides somewhere else? At the moment, we make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for them to relocate. They must stay put, even though that staying put may be incredibly hard financially and emotionally and can't really be that great for the kids. Thanks, Vivian. That was Vivian Elizabeth from the Department of Sociology at the University of Auckland, and that story was produced by Sonia Sly. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, he hōtaka e pānaki a papa tuanuku, tangaroa me ranginui. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now... Look around. We're going to be focusing on something that's everywhere and vital to life and almost always invisible. In this instalment of the Elemental Podcast, 
with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology, we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the periodic table with a look at oxygen. While many of the chemical elements we're covering are vital to life, I do happen to think that this is a particularly vital one. There are about 25 elements that are very important to life. Four of them make up about 96% of the human body. We've already covered carbon, nitrogen and hydrogen, which leaves oxygen. Deep breath, everyone. (gasps) (sighs) Good old oxygen. (laughs) So it's vital statistics, chemical symbol O, atomic number 8. And when we talk about oxygen on the periodic table, we see the symbol O, but when we're breathing it in, we're actually inhaling O2, or dioxygen, oxygen molecules. And those molecules make up around about 20% of the air that we breathe. It's the second most common element in air after nitrogen, of course, which we've already covered. At room temperature and atmospheric pressure, two oxygen atoms always bond together to make the colourless odourless gas that keeps us alive. And when you get 3, O3, that's ozone, right? Yes, indeed, that's ozone, or as the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemists call it, tri-oxygen. I've never heard it called (laughs) tri-oxygen. And and neither had I until we did this. So that apparently is its name that you are meant to call it, its systematic name. What do we know about oxygen? We know a heck of a lot about oxygen, actually, so we're going to have to uh, whiz through this because there's an awful lot to talk about today. First up, what we've talked about thus far is an example of allotropy. So oxygen, dioxygen O2 and trioxygen O3 or ozone are allotropes. Allotropes are chemical elements that exist in two or more different forms in the same physical state. And so we've already talked about allotropes way back when, when we talked about carbon. So different structural modifications uh, of an element. So, for example, with carbon, we had diamond, we had uh, graphene, we had graphite, we had all of the fullerenes. So they're all just made up of carbon atoms, but all arranged in different ways. So in this case, when we're talking about oxygen and allotropes of oxygen, our allotropes have got different chemical behaviours. So ozone which is the chemical formula O3, a much stronger oxidising agent than dioxygen O2. Whoa, pull up, pull up. We've dived right into the chemistry before I have a chance to ask about its name, which I do like to do. So oxygen, please. Okay, oxygen comes from the Greek words, in this case, oxygenes, which means acid forming. Acid forming, is it really? Yes, but to get there, we have to go through a bit of a convoluted history. So, are we all sitting comfortably? Okay, Yeah, very comfortable. Thank you, (laughs) Professor. So as we talked about with nitrogen, we go way back to the 1600s and 1700s, and uh, people were busy experimenting with air at that time, and they had showed that a candle that burned in a limited amount of air would eventually go out, and at that point it would have consumed about 20% of the volume of the air. And so obviously there is something important in air. They all came to that same conclusion. So who actually discovered oxygen? Well, the jury's kind of still out on that. There's a bit of controversy here. So what is known is that some people had in fact made oxygen in the 17th century, But the trouble is that they didn't recognise it as being a new element. And so the credit these days is usually given to Joseph Priestley 
and he definitely prepared it in 1774. The way he did this was by focusing sunlight on a sample of mercury oxide, HGO, and he would then collect the gas that came off. And the really important point about this is that he published the results of his experiments on forming oxygen, and he did that in 1775, which was a real shame for a guy by the name of Carl Scheele. So in 1773, which was a year earlier than Priestley, he had actually made oxygen. He called it fire air, and he did this by heating things like potassium nitrate, silver carbonate, mercuric oxide. But the trouble was that he was slow off the mark, and he didn't publish his results until 1777. That old publish or perish thing. No, that's the thing. There's no silver medals in science, no prizes for coming second. You have to be first into print. So how did Priestley become interested in gases? Well, nice story there. He lived next door to a brewery, and what he found was that there was a gas that floated over the piles of fermenting grain at said brewery. And so he studied this gas, and he showed that it was heavier than air, and that when it was dissolved in water, it made it fizzy. So he was the first person to make a fizzy drink because the gas that was over the fermenting piles of grain was carbon dioxide. And once he'd sorted that out, he became interested in other gases, and that's how he came to make oxygen. So with some of his experiments, uh, he showed that a mouse lived at least twice as long in the new gas than in the equivalent volume of air. And being a brave soul, he also breathed some of his uh, newly made oxygen himself. And he wrote that, quote, The feeling of it in my lungs was not sensibly different from that of common air, but I fancied that my breast felt particularly light and easy for some time afterwards. And so Priestley didn't call it oxygen. Uh, that was left to somebody else who's coming up. He actually called it deflogisticated air. And... The reason he called it that was because of a thing called phlogiston, which I am not going to talk about here. If you're interested, look it up on the web. But again, unfortunately, Priestley didn't recognise it as being a chemical element. And the person who actually named oxygen was the Frenchman Lavoisier. And he actually also claimed credit for making oxygen. And the reason that it's got its name uh, from the Greek oxygenis was because Lavoisier thought that it was a component of all acids and hence the name acid forming. And we now know that that's actually not true. So long story made long. Well, thank you for that elucidation. <laughs> um, what I take home from that is I think we should go back to calling oxygen deflogisticated air. That's brilliant. <laughs> and all these people, they kept discovering it, but they either didn't recognise what they'd got or thought it was something else. Yep. Hmm. I think that's probably not too surprising considering you have a colourless, odourless, i.e. invisible gas. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on from the history, I remember from quite a few previous episodes that oxygen likes to make friends with lots of other elements. Off the top of my head, CO2, carbon dioxide, H2O, dihydrogen oxide, also better known as water. And also known by IUPAC as oxidane. Really? That's its, that's its real name. That's what you are meant to call it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll just have a glass of Oxidane, thanks. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, there's squillions more things that there have are. got oxygen lumped together in a friendly fashion with other things. Indeed. And yes, we certainly could go on with this for a very, very long time because oxygen does, in fact, react with most of the elements on the periodic table. Why is it so reactive? 
<laughs> very good question. I will give a very short answer to that and the fact that it contains unpaired electrons. So generally things that have got unpaired electrons are quite reactive. I won't go into great detail on that because I'm sure I'll get emails. Anyway, the process that we call respiration uh, is what chemists would call combustion. Okay, It's the same chemical reaction essentially. And that is the reaction of organic molecules with oxygen to give both carbon dioxide and water plus, and this is the important bit, lots and lots of energy. And so Earth has way more oxygen than other planets thanks to a thing called the oxygen cycle. And uh, indeed, it hasn't always been this way. So the Earth formed around about four and a half billion years ago, and it wasn't until the evolution of cyanobacteria, which formed oxygen from photosynthesis, that we began to get a build-up of the amount of oxygen on the planet. And this was around about three to two billion years ago, and uh, has the very good name, the Great Oxygenation Event. So prior to this, there were a whole bunch of anaerobic organisms. I bet they were pissed off. (laughs) I bet they were. They'd been doing really, really well, and then bloody oxygen comes along, and all of these things go extinct. Uh. So that's kind of sucked for them. And so the result of this event was basically the oxygen cycle as we know it today. So what happens? We get photosynthesis releasing oxygen into the atmosphere, and then we get respiration and decay and combustion removing it from the atmosphere. And at the moment, we've got an equilibrium where the production and the consumption of oxygen occur at the same rate. Well, a big shout-out to those cyanobacteria, or blue-green algae, as lots of people call them, which really kicked that process off and gave us the air that we breathe today. And no, I'm not about to break into song again. Is (laughs) oxygen, however, common only in air? In fact, it's common everywhere. So obviously we find it in the ocean thanks to water. We find it in the atmosphere thanks to oxygen. And indeed, oxygen is the most abundant element in the Earth's crust. And there we find it combined uh, with silicon in quartz, with aluminium in alumina, with titanium in rutile, and with iron in hematite. And going back to the atmosphere, we talked about ozone earlier. Ozone is very, very important in the atmosphere, as I'm sure everybody knows, because it absorbs harmful UV radiation from the sun. But the astonishing thing is the actual amount of ozone in the atmosphere. If we took all of this or if we bought all of this ozone together at zero degrees and at atmospheric pressure, it would form a layer right around the Earth that was only, get this, three millimetres thick. The word that comes to mind is fragility of that, you know, for this incredibly important shield. That's that's a delicate amount of ozone. (laughs) Oh, it is indeed. And as everybody knows, there are holes in the ozone layer. And in the area of those holes, what is found is around about two-thirds less ozone. So in those areas there, you're talking about a one-millimeter thick layer of ozone. Quite amazing. So it's very, very important in the upper atmosphere there. It is important at sea level as well. We often use ozone in water purification as an alternative to chlorine. Uh, It's a very, very strong oxidising agent and it just gives off oxygen when it breaks down. That's the closest we've got so far to an industrial use for it. And we often have long lists of industrial uses for elements. Is oxygen the same? Uh, Yes, indeed it is. And in fact, very interestingly, most industrially produced oxygen, in other words, that's oxygen that we extract from the air, is used in steel making. And how this works is that you bubble oxygen through your uh, furnace, which contains basically molten iron and a whole lot of other stuff there. 
It reacts with the carbon that is left over from carbon reducing essentially the iron oxides. It turns that into carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, which just in fact bubble off. So very, very, very important there. And also in things like rocket launches, for example, where liquid oxygen reacts with fuels like kerosene or hydrogen and gives out an awful, awful lot of energy. As an example of this, I once saw a demonstration where a visiting scientist dipped a cigar into liquid oxygen. He then lit the cigar and managed to push it through around about a one millimetre thick piece of steel. You're talking really, really hot. Remember, oxygen supports combustion. Indeed, I think that's why people who are on oxygen and have oxygen tanks next to them when they have limited respiratory capacity are warned to not smoke. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Amen. Now, a curious fact, please. Okay, so we normally think of things that get attracted to magnets as being solids and generally being metals. And weirdly, elemental oxygen, dioxygen, O2, is in fact attracted to a magnet. It is what we call paramagnetic, and what that means is that it contains, in this case, two unpaired electrons. And in fact, you can do a really nice demonstration with liquid oxygen again. You pour it between the poles of a powerful magnet, and it will actually stick in between the poles, and you get a little bridge of liquid oxygen, and it supports its own weight. That's a really, really nice demonstration. That's super cool. I, oh, oh <laughs> no. What do we call compounds that contain unpaired electrons? We call them free radicals. And contrary to what you hear in cosmetics advertisements, not all free radicals are bad. <laughs> Thanks, Alan, for that sensible chemical advice. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and the chemistry podcast Elemental. To listen to tonight's stories again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. You can subscribe and listen to Our Changing World and Elemental as podcasts in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and so on. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.